Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome everyone to the Coffee Clatch. This is May Wilkinson. I'll be hosting tonight and this evening I am extremely excited to talk to you about our guest who is Dr. Lucy Miller. And Dr. Miller is the founder and director of the Sensory Processing Disorder Foundation. She's been very busy and tirelessly expanding our knowledge and fostering awareness of sensory processing disorders. Please join us as we discuss the amazing work this woman has done and what she continues to do in research and programs. Dr. Miller is the author of the incredible book, Sensational Kids, Hope and Help for Children with Sensory Processing Disorders, and the soon-to-be-released No Longer a Secret, Unique Common Sense Strategies for Children with Sensory or Motor Challenges. Dr. Miller has also created several assessment tools for teachers and clinicians, including Matt Miller Assessment for Preschoolers. She's considered to be one of the foremost authorities in the diagnosis and treatment of sensory processing disorders. Welcome, Dr. Miller. I usually don't do such a long introduction, but you are so accomplished. I wanted everyone to understand your contributions in this area. Thank you so much, and it's a great pleasure to be here tonight. Thank you. Well, I wanted just to start off with some really big news. Evidently, you have been working with the um, DSM committee to see what you can do about having sensory processing disorders become an official diagnosis. Is that what I heard? Um, Well, I've been doing that for 15 years. (laughs) So (laughs) it's not new news, but actually the news part of it is that – it turns out we turned in nineteen in two thousand seven, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. We turned in thirty page, sixty page, and ninety page reports on all the new research that has been done. And this year, they called me back and said they needed by July sixth a nine page summary with tables of all the research. So. It was a huge job to get this done, but we did get it in by July 6th, and we got a nice note back from them saying that it was very well done and that it would help the committee make a decision faster. So we're waiting. We still haven't heard for sure. But what an accomplishment to be considered and to be, you know, on a kind of a short list uh, for for consideration. What would that mean, Dr. Miller, if sensory processing disorders were added to the DSM? Well, I'll just call it SPD for short. Okay. Um, SPD is not considered a legitimate diagnosis by many insurance companies, many physicians, many psychologists, many school systems. And if SPD gets in the DSM, there are, by the way, three ways we could get in. One is as a new diagnosis. Almost certainly that will not happen. You can't go from nothing to everything. Mm-hmm. Number two, we could get in under an existing diagnosis, for example, under autism as one of the features of autism. And three, we could get in as a novel diagnosis. What that means is it's a diagnosis that needs more research. So we're kind of pushing, you know, we know we're not in as number one, a new diagnosis, but we're pushing for two and three. Mm-hmm. I think either either one would be a, um, a wonderful addition. Uh, I think it would aid so much in everyone's understanding, particularly for for autism. 
Um, so we we'd love to have that one added. I and I think most self advocates would applaud having their significant um, sensory issues to be you know called out as, as an explanation for some of some of the behavior. Right. If we so, get into the book, it will validate that this is a real condition, whether it exists in autism or any other diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It's not something people are making up and exaggerating. It is a terrible discomfort to people and affects their lives in very profound ways. Well, why don't we talk about some of those symptoms? Uh, what are some of the um, uh, the symptoms of SPD? And, and you know, go ahead. Um, one of the things that a lot of people do not understand is that there are many subtypes of SPD, and I don't know which ones you're familiar with, but one of the most extreme that people know the most about is called sensory over-responsivity or tact, you know, tactile defensiveness, auditory defensiveness. It's where children or adults respond too much or too easily to stimuli which really they should be able to ignore. But their brain says, danger, danger. And because of that, they have an an over-response that is physiological. It's not a behavior problem, but it often gets labeled as a behavior problem. So that is one subtype. We could spend the whole hour just on that. Mm-hmm. But just so that your listeners will understand, there are also, there's also sensory under-responsivity and sensory craving where they seem not to be able to get enough stimulation. And there's a motor planning problem called dyspraxia and a postural problem. And then there's something called discrimination problems. So these I don't want to bore people by going too much into any to all of these, but I do want people to know that a differential diagnosis or or bringing your child to somebody who really has a deep understanding of sensory processing disorder is very very important that that's very good to know and will people uh be be able to look at the some of the subtypes that you have alluded to or just kind of um, summarized on your website and in your books or, or yes those okay great so we'll make sure that we post those links and for me I was just astounded that I knew about sensory overload meltdowns but I had no idea that that maybe sensory um, problems could explain physical and verbal tics, which might kind of appear as OCD behaviors or even Mm -hmm. autistic stimming. So um, I I read about uh, food pickiness might be because the food doesn't feel right in the mouth. So these sensory disorders affect all facets of life. Yes, they can. Okay. So it affects school. It affects relationships and social it affects you know just taking care of the body by getting enough exercise and and eating properly is this true it can affect all of those things it can affect sleep it can affect relationships it can affect there's nothing it really doesn't touch but just because a child has problem with sleep or with putting their clothes on does not necessarily mean they have a sensory processing disorder. You have to have a really good trained person 
who's been mentored by somebody who's advanced in the field of sensory processing disorder do a complete evaluation before you know whether or not it's really sensory or it could be emotional or it could be attention. So it's very, very complicated. I I can see that, and especially in today's um, kind of diagnostic soup where Mm -hmm. there's so much lack of clarity and and a a diagnosis is still so subjective depending on the evaluator's experience set. But let me ask you this. And part of the problem is that we are diagnosing all of these developmental and behavioral disorders based on a, a series of symptoms. And some of those symptoms overlap. Mm-hmm. So you might be have ADHD but also be a sensory craver. Once we have some genetic or some kind of biological marker, then we will really know who has what. Until then, we have to go based on the best clinical judgment we can get. Wow. So if a child has been diagnosed with something else like Tourette's or autism or ADHD um, or a mental illness, uh, should should they go in and have a, an SPD evaluation? I think it depends on what the symptoms are that the parents are concerned about. Okay. If the parents see that their child reacts oddly to sensory stimuli, like they pull away from touch or they don't notice touch. They fall and they are bleeding and they don't notice that. It can, there are many symptoms that can be significant and can indicate a need for an evaluation. My own feeling is that why not get it evaluated and if it's not that, you can at least rule that out. If it is that, the therapy for sensory processing disorder is doesn't involve medication. It doesn't have to be a long-term therapy. So the therapy is, you know, I know we'll get to that later in the in the talk, but it's it's important to know that you can go in and sort of clean up some of the sensory issues and then see what's left. Well, I that's there. That was actually my next question. What what can parents do to help? And and you're saying no medication. Well, I'm not saying take your child (laughs) off medication, but Mm -hmm. if it's sensory, the sensory part doesn't need medication. Mm. You might need medication for hyperactivity or for sleeping or something else. But sensory processing disorder is treated with occupational therapy, a very holistic approach which is based on relationships and engagement and and keeping the child's level of arousal from going too high or too low. Mhm. Mhm. How how uh, so so just can you give us a simple example of something a parent can do at home to prevent their child's arousal from going too high or too low? Well, let's see. It's it's very hard without a specific child in mind, but okay. the important thing is to to make sure that child has been evaluated by somebody who's, who feels it is their job to inform the parent, not to take the child and treat the child. Because if the parents are not informed and are not shown and coached about what to do, you know, what good does it do for the child to get 50 minutes of OT once a week? Mm. Actually, none. It does no good. So uh, that's a fairly 
dynamic statement, isn't it? I'm sure some people would disagree with me, but we have we have in our clinic, which is the Star Center here in Denver, we have a, a new model that we use. We just call it the Star Center model, but it's an intensive model where the child gets treated every day for 50 minutes, and but for very short term, like maybe two and a half months, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we get them involved in community activities. I, I think it's a real travesty that so many children are in once a week therapy for the rest of their lives, sort of. And <laughs> I, I can't agree with you. I mean, more. I really, really can't. We we found that so many of the traditional um, treatments do not work for us, and I don't think it's just in the case of um, of SPD. I really think that it's it's somewhat universal. We were talking before the call that so much of our special education system and our interventions are based upon the, you know, kind of an old modality of, you know, traditional learning disabilities and cognitive processing disorders, and and that involves a lot of repetition, which may or may not be helpful to some kids who learn in different ways. Is your work at the STAR Center, um, you, you said that you, you start kind of in, in the group and then you move out into the community. Is that something of a desensitize, to, um, to desensitize the child to certain? Well, if they're over-responsive, that is just one subtype, then uh-huh. you want to desensitize them, yes. Mm-hmm. And if they're under-responsive, then you want to increase their sensitivity. So, again, Back to the point of the evaluation, it's important for the child to be evaluated by somebody who really, really understands sensation, not just understands special education or maybe a specialist in autism. It takes a team is what it is. It takes a multidisciplinary team to really figure out what is going on with children. And then once you figure it out, if it is sensory, it needs to be treated by somebody who has specific training in sensory processing treatment. Mm -hmm. So at our center, for example, we offer mentorships where people come in small groups of 8 to 10 or 12, and they stay for a whole week, and we train them to diagnose all the different subtypes of sensory processing disorder. We train them in our new treatment model, which is not just sensory integration, has a piece of sensory integration, but also is much broader than that. So it's very important for parents to know that there's sort of the old traditional model, and then there are new models, like you said, that go beyond what some of the older models do. Mm-hmm. You talked about a team, and I know a team aligns by the needs um, of a child, but in, in the diagnostic process, is there just one evaluator, or do you have a, also a, a, a team of people going through and and reviewing some of the child's uh, behaviors and, and, and issues? Well, in our center, we have a pediatrician, a psychologist, a social worker, an OT, a speech-language therapist, um, yeah, I think that's it. In some places, you need to have a physical therapist as well if there are significant motor problems. 
And we have all these professionals evaluate the child and then come together to say, hey, what did you think? Did you, did you, you're an expert in autism. Did you see some core symptoms of autism? You're an expert in sensory. What did you find? And then we kind of worked out the diagnosis amongst us. And, and we then meet with the parents to try to explain it to them. Mm-hmm. Following the diagnosis, we have, um, what is what we call a goal-setting session, which is a whole hour of really trying to hammer out with the parents what the priorities are. So parents' goals are what we're working on in treatment, not our goals. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you, today I was just talking to a mother who's here from Mississippi, and she, her child has been in OT, speech, and... Um, a special education kind of therapy three times a week for three years, and she doesn't know one goal that they're working on. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just very typical and 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 not appropriate because if the mother doesn't really know what the child's goals are, how do you know that the goals the therapist is working on are even matter? How do you know they matter to the family? I think that's a huge gap, and and that advocacy is is so important, and and mm-hmm. to encourage parents to receive that advocacy training is uh, is critical, um, and certainly knowing the goals uh, and being able to help architect those goals is, mm-hmm. is very important. Otherwise, I I think many times our children are. Um, there, the expectations for the child are lowered on some of these IEPs, and that's, that's exactly. not right. Um, I agree. Oh, well, good. I, I'm glad. Let's talk a little bit about um, about your your new book coming out, uh, No Longer okay. Secret, The Common Sense Strategies for Children. I, I love that title, Common <laughs> Sense Strategies for Children with Sensory Processing Disorders. So why did you feel the need to write the book? Well, if in my first book, Sensational Kids, there's a little bit of information about what we call a secret. Now, people think that OTs have secrets to treatment, but the truth is that if you're a really good OT, by the time the parent leaves you, they know all your secrets. And we named it a secret because each letter of a secret stands for something, attention, sensation, and so on. So it's me, it's funny that once you read the book, it's not a secret anymore. So that's <laughs> why I called it a secret. Mm-hmm. And these are, I have a co-author also, Dorit Bialer, and the two of us wrote the book together um, because we want parents to, to know they don't have to buy expensive equipment in order to have things that will help their children. And we wanted to give them sort of a clue to problem-solving rather than something that is called a sensory diet. In the old days, every parent used to come in and say, oh, give me a sensory diet. But, you know, (laughs) where is your sensory diet when your child is falling apart at McDonald's? You know, it's at home on your counter somewhere. Mm -hmm. So what our book is about is about how parents can learn problem-solving so that in the moment they have tools, strategies that they can call upon to help them in the moment with the child's, you know, reaction, which can be 
very embarrassing for families and and difficult to know what to do. Mhm. You know, I um met with a very very um dedicated and and talented woman today who was um evaluating my son and on another issue and she asked me uh about a private high school that has a number of high schoolers that have um attention problems and she mm-hmm. was wondering what and and in high school the classes can you know can be the blocks of time can be 3 hours long how do you keep kids that have these sensory type issues whether it, you know a lot of a lot of the ADHD it's my understanding is is kind of sensory based anyway how, how do you keep these kids to give them the sensation they need or or to help them um be able to move their bodies without disrupting the class. So what would you mm-hmm. recommend for something like that, for a bunch of wiggly teenagers who need to sit down and learn in class? In high school? I recommend they're not sitting down. Very they good. are on balls or on movable surfaces. They now have desks where you can stand up on a bar and kind of rock yourself and you still have a surface that you can work on. I think they need they need options. Just like families need options, children need options for every single question that you could think of, every single situation. There's not one answer that fits all. Mm-hmm. But but the traditional sit in a chair for three hours is not going to work for our kids. Right. And it doesn't matter if it has a rubber band tied around the edge or if they have a <laughs> pillow or, <laughs> or whatever, it's, or something to chew on that's probably not going to work. Uh, one of the cutest phrases I ever heard some, was that some children need to fidget to focus. So you're saying mm-hmm. fidget away <laughs> mm-hmm. in a way that yeah. works for you. And that, that is not distracting to the rest of the class. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of the year, the teacher and the class together should make some class rules, like if you're sitting on a ball and you throw the ball, you lose the ball. So, But we find that children who need these special accommodations don't abuse them because they need them so much. It helps them so much. The last thing in the world they want is for, for it to go away. And, and these are, um, as you said, they can be very, very simple. Um, yeah. My my guy um, in in fourth grade, putting him from the back of the room to the front of the room where there is nothing bet- between him, you know, between the teacher mm-hmm. and the smartboard, it, it made all the world of difference. It really can make a difference. Some of that sensory um, clutter uh, exactly. in the classroom. You know, something else that can make a huge difference is using an FM system. So the teacher has a little microphone and the child has earphones, so it can cut out the sound around them and the teacher's voice is boosted. Oh, that's lovely. Now, we do have the the things that the teachers wear around their, their, their necks that kind of amplify, but not, mm-hmm. on the, not on the receiving end with the earphones. That's a great idea. It's a simple idea, and for some children, it can make just an absolute world of difference because instead of all this auditory clutter, they mm-hmm. hear what the teacher is saying. I oh, had one child yeah, who ahead. said to me that, you know, 
I just can't, I can't work. I said, well, why? Why can't you work at school? It's all those pencils. The pencils are scratching up and down on the paper, and it just gives me chills. And it's like nails on a blackboard to this child. So using the auditory FM system, this cut out all that sound, and the child could focus on what the teacher was asking then. Oh, Dr. Miller, that's wonderful. Yeah, I I, I understand that. I see that in my child, too. I I think when he is on a certain, and many kids, when they're on, um, you know, a a stimulant medication for ADHD, I I think they they can hear a fly coming down the street. Exactly. So I would imagine that those little noises are, are troublesome. Well, what about the children who need lots and lots of, um, you know, of, of sensory um, feedback? What what kinds of things would you recommend for those guys? Well, first of all, can I take a minute to just get rid of a myth? That is, I like to think sure. of myself as a myth buster. Oh, please do. <laughs> there please is do. something that um, in our field that is called the sensory seeking We now call it sensory craving. Mm -hmm. And there are many people running around who think that children who are seeking or craving sensation just have empty tanks that need to be filled up with more sensation. And that is actually the exact opposite of what those children need. The the children who are under-responsive, yes, They need more, much more stimulation. But the children who are seeking sensation, like they're running around, they're trying to get more, they're running into walls, they're literally bouncing off the walls, and Mm -hmm. it it can be ADHD, in which case medication will help. But if it's sensory and they're craving, craving, craving it, I was telling them, um, my parents at, we used, we do this group called Lunch with Lucy on on Wednesdays. And I was telling my parents today that it's more like an addiction. It's If you're a sensory craver, what you need to do for that child is to interrupt the craving aspect of the sensation. So you make it meaningful. You don't just have them run around the house to get it out of their system or bounce on a ball or spin in a net or... What you need to do is to give them interrupted functional sensation. So, for example, you put them on a on a bouncy ball and they bounce three times and then they stop and throw something into a bucket. Or if you're at school, you bounce three times and then you write a sentence so that it's not just constant sensory stimulation. That will actually disorganize a child mm-hmm. if you give them too much sensory stimulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had an OT tell me that one time, too, and, and I think she was right. At, at the time, I wanted to kill her because I thought I was doing the right thing. But I, mm-hmm. I, I, as, as my son gets older, I see that. Can we? So we need to just kind of tweet out that if your kid is jumping around, we, we you need to do something more... Um, directed calming. with it more calming because yeah. that's why they're jumping around not to blow off steam but just to try and calm themselves and it's just kind right. of adding to it right yeah. that's exactly right 
That's a huge insight. If people can understand the difference between a child who's under-responsive and needs more stimulation and a child who's sensory craving and needs stimulation but interrupted stimulation that's interrupted with functional tasks, that's a huge piece they can learn from this conversation we're having right now. Well, uh, we, we'll we'll go through and we'll tweet that one over and over and over again. So parents, you know, don't help. How could we? Well, we'll, we'll try to figure out a way to say what you've just said in 140 characters or less. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll just put the link onto this interview. So, so you mentioned a few ways to help calm a child who's who's jumping around or um, you know just just bouncing off the walls. So, so you're saying take it from a um, kind of an, an an unstructured to something that's more structured as you're yes. putting a ball in a and ah oh, in in a in the wastebasket or something or right uh, okay great and are, are these some of the things that you all do at the Star Center? Other things for children who are sensory cravers or mm-hmm. I mean, well, we have yeah a, yeah yeah, yeah we have a very comprehensive program so there are many many things that we do but the primary goal is to teach the parents what needs to be done and to coach the parents we don't just say okay watch me here it goes you know no we say okay mom you come in here and play with little ben and let's see the three of us can take turns let's see if the three of us i'll tell you one thing we do this is kind of an an easy thing in a way it's so easy that nobody does it, but we have found that many children don't understand stop. They can't stop. Mm-hmm. So we spend time in the beginning when we're getting to know the child working on stop so that if there's nothing else that they learn when they're with us, it's that the parents can say stop and the child will stop. And we mm-hmm. play lots of games with stop signs and stop lights and red cards and green cards mm-hmm. and, you know, making sure that the child has the, the basics um, to be able to inhibit what they're doing. You can use sensory motor equipment and you can you have to have fun. So, you know, there's no crying in our center, but it's a, it's a lot of fun. But the thing that's so confusing is if you look through a window and watch what's what's going on, there's no way you can really tell what the goal is because it just looks like play. Mm -hmm. If it's done well by an experienced therapist, it looks like they're playing, but but the goals are often to have the child learn to inhibit or to have the child learn to engage better with his parents and with the other children who are there. Mm-hmm. So engagement is something we haven't talked about very much, you and I, that is. And and I think one of the real major contributions of Dr. Greenspan, Dr. Stanley Greenspan, is was his insistence and his kind of unique look at engagement as one of the founding cornerstones of treatment. So... When a child comes to the Star Center, we don't start with sensory stimulation. We start with engagement and arousal mm-hmm. regulation. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! Um, I, I this uh, I I agree. I, I think that was the the first time that I broke through with with my child was learning mm-hmm. how to engage with him, 
How very, very validating and how very, very sweet of you to bring that up. I think most mothers, especially with children on the autism spectrum, and, and now I'm learning children with SPD, they they need to learn how to engage. And, um, yes, and because it's so much more important than some fine motor skill or some mm-hmm. visual motor skill or some letter and numbers that they learn to spout out just because they see an A or a B. You know, if the child is not connected with his mother and or father, then that is what we need to be working on, even if he's 10 years old, because it's through that relationship with his parents that he learns to understand the world and to relate to other people. So we back up. We back all the way up to the beginning of relating. We play not baby games, but that have the same goals as some of the baby games, like peekaboo, okay, but mm-hmm. we don't call it peekaboo. We we think of older ways to do it. Like, for example, we might take a platform swing that's hanging from the ceiling and wrap a blanket around it. And every time the child comes around and turns around, he sees his mom when he comes around. And then he turns the other direction. And he sees his mom finally when he gets her all the way around. And there's a big kind of celebration when they see each other. And for a child who really doesn't understand engagement and relationships, that is so much more important than teaching him what ABC is. Oh, I I think you are so right. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, we're getting into, you know, the first half an hour of the interview, and Marianne has been monitoring the, the tweet chat, and she's been collecting questions. I'm going to ask Marianne to come back on and start asking you some questions. Um, That'd that be great. Is that okay? It's All right, great. Marianne, uh, come on on. Come on um, over. Hi. Actually, they're not questions um, from the chat. <clears throat> they're questions that I have. Um, <laughs> as I'm listening, you know, my, my mind is going and, um, you know, I know when you were on last time, um, there was a lot of confusion for a lot of parents, so I just wanted to back that up a little bit. Um, you know, sensory processing disorder is a standalone. Um, I, I don't want to call it diagnosis, but um, it can be a standalone um, issue, and it can also be comorbid with a lot of other disorders. So That's right. I guess my question would be, does sensory processing disorder look differently when it is a standalone disorder? Um, is it any different? Um, does it appear, the presentation's any different than, say, if it's with bipolar or Tourette's or OCD? Because I think that that really is causing a lot of confusion, I know for me personally, um, because the sensory issues were misinterpreted for a very long time as OCD mm-hmm. or mood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The child looks different. The sensory part isn't necessarily different, but because the child looks so different, let's say the child has Tourette's, the Tourette's is going to be such a pervasive behavioral observation that you can not you cannot see sometimes the sensory piece because the other things are so profound and so in-your-face, kind of. For a child with autism, they sometimes are so much in their own world that you don't, you're not noticing the sensory piece because you're noticing the, the autism more. Right, right. A child and, you with know, bipolar, you notice the mood swings, and you, you, you sort of forget that underneath that, 
some of the sensory stimulation may be actually causing the child to have the mood swings. Right, because I know rages. Um, you know, we had done, when we had you on last. It was after um, Oprah had aired a show um, on sensory processing disorder, and um, there was a child that was very um, dysregulated, very out of control, constant rages, and um, a lot of parents got very frightened because they thought that was part and parcel of um, sensory processing disorder. Um, exactly. And but the sensory issues can create rages, isn't that true? Uh, they can create severe behavioral disturbances. A rage in and of itself is not mean the child has a sensory problem, but if the child is forced into a situation where they have to experience sensation over and over and over, that is dangerous, feels dangerous to their nervous system, yeah, they're going to get aggressive. Yeah, they're going to have rages. They're going to have temper tantrums. They're talking to you. They're trying to tell you, this hurts, this stimulation I cannot take. So imagine that you were forced to have a feather tickle your ear once every 10 minutes. I mean, you would would go crazy. So a lot of times these rages and other behaviors that we see are are the child's way of trying to tell us what they feel. You know, we we tell um, parents all the time here on the show that, um, you know, for every behavior there's a cause. And, you know, we're finding, and, you know, you obviously know, but we're finding that oftentimes these causes are sensory issues. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, you were just mentioning the ears before. Now, I know with autistic children that they actually feel pain at Mm -hmm. certain tones or voices or, Mm -hmm. you know, volumes. Right. Is that similar to a sensory issue in sensory processing disorder? And is that yeah. a pain? That has nothing to do with the the um, anatomy of the ear, right? No, not the outside. It's central. It's inside. So it has to do with processing the sensory stimuli, not the receiving, the receptor of the sensation. So you can maybe it would help if we talk about the idea of a threshold, a threshold is the point at which you feel something. The child may have a normal threshold, like you touch him lightly on the skin, he can feel it just like you or I. But once the signals start going into the brain, they go to the wrong place, or they get amplified or dampened, depending on the child's problem. And so an over-responsive child, the signal gets amplified and amplified until a little sound can sound like a huge bang to that child. Well, so what what would a parent do for something like that? I mean, that would be maddening, say, say in a classroom where every 45 minutes a bell rings, you know. Right, and whenever anybody asks me a question like that, I generally answer, it depends, <laughs> because you have to know a lot more about the child. I don't want to give right. any parent the feeling that they can just do this one thing and it's going to fix that, but there are listening programs, for example, Um, We use a program called Integrated Listening in our clinic, and the parents take it home and work with it, and the children become less sensitive to sound because they listen to very low, low low-level sounds that that train the brain to mute other high-pitched sounds. So that's a whole other ballgame, and there are a number of different listening programs, many of which 
I have found don't work, but there's a couple that are really good. And in the hands of a skilled clinician, somebody who's been carefully trained, then parents can be trained to just be able to take this home and do it at home. Wow. That's great. What about, Dr. Miller, what about the um, dyspraxia, some of the motor um, sensory issues? So dyspraxia, another word for that, is motor planning problems. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Ayers, who began the whole field of sensory integration, it was called then, when when I was mentored by her, I I did a three-month mentorship with her early in my career, and she used to say, Lucy, you have to look at this and find out, is it a motor planning problem or is it a motor planning problem? So (laughs) what... (laughs) And what she meant by that is, is the problem in the motor system or is the problem cognitive, a part of the planning process? And knowing the answer to that will tell you what treatment the child needs. There are many things you can do for dyspraxia. And and sadly, these children often are very smart, you know, IQs of 150 and above, and they feel lousy. They feel... Their self-esteem is just in the gutter. And we need to deal with that as much as we need to deal with the motor problem. Mm-hmm. There are three kind of mantras that we always deal with with every single child that we see, and, and they are social participation, self-regulation, and self-esteem. We are not treating a just a sensory problem. We are treating a child who lives in a family and we're treating the whole system. So you can't just treat a vestibular. Everybody loves to say vestibular and proprioceptive. They love to put these big words in their reports, but that is just a very small part of what we do. You know, and you had mentioned about gifted, and you know that's mm-hmm. something that um, I, I always question because there are so many children with neurobiological disorders that are so bright, so mm-hmm. gifted. Many are, are genius. Mhm. Um, you know, why why do you think that is and and you know, my actually that was one of the questions I had for you and the other um question that um I had is that I know that you've created the um Miller assessment plan. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because one of my pet peeves is that when children go to preschool or when they're going into kindergarten, they're tested for their intelligence and not for their learning style or their sensory um issues. Mm-hmm. So, what does the what does MAP do? How does that assess child? Well, let me just tell you that I've developed nine norm nine norm reference standardized tests. MAP was the first one, and that was developed in the 70s. And since then, I've developed eight more. And so a lot of what is really important is not what the child knows, but how mature his nervous system is, how ready his nervous system is to learn. A child who's being tested on the ABCs, what you're really testing is has the parent sat down with the child in the early years and read to him and worked with him to teach him letters and numbers. I think it's much more important to look at things that tell us about the brain and and how mature it is. So let me give you an example. Um, If you march in place, you can march in place with your eyes open, So just do this for me. March in place where you are. 
and your eyes are open and you're walking, you're going march, march, all the way to Grandma's house. Now close your eyes and keep marching. You close your eyes, your feet keep going up and down, march, march. Now open your eyes. You probably will find you haven't moved. You just have stayed in one place. That's because your brain can tell you where you are in space. A child with an immature nervous system will move when they close their eyes. They will not be able to stay in that they'll either rotate or they'll move forward or backwards or sideways. So those are the kind of items that tell us about the maturity of the brain rather than what the child knows, what they've learned from their parents. Cool. And that item actually is from the map from the first test that I developed. You know, and I think it's it's really key. Do most schools um, use this? Are most educators using this? Because it I seems that a lot of kids are being missed. It's not being caught until, yeah. you know, they're in first, second, third grade when, exactly. you know, there could have been early intervention. My dream is actually a fussy baby clinic. Because oh, yeah. oh, that what is be a fussy great. baby? I mean, what yeah. makes a baby fussy? It's not like they're thinking about something they didn't get for dinner. A fussy baby is a baby who's not processing sensory information sensory information correctly. What is colic? colic yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> right. You don't know what the baby has is what it means. So... I think and you know, I think get... you can really see it early because I mean, you know, I, I've mm-hmm. had um, several children, and, and it, it was so obvious. So I mean, in infancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a huge uh, feeding program now, which is run by Dr. Kay Toomey. Someday you might want to have her on your show. She, she is amazing. Um, we have like children amazing. who are. <laughs> we have children who are who are referred for G tubes plastic tubes that are put into their stomach because they they don't realize people don't realize that therapy can help these children to learn to eat that not eating and you started this when you started questioning me right in the beginning you mentioned children who don't like to put things in their mouths these can be children who are very over responsive to sensation they don't need necessarily a g-tube they they need therapy first at least you have to try therapy you had mentioned before desensitizing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is desensitizing in sense for sensory issues similar to exposure and response in obsessive compulsive disorder? I think it's very. It has a lot in common with that. Yes. Okay. Okay. And um, we were we were talking about the role of the parents, and there was one thing I didn't get to say that I want to to say to parents out there who might be listening, and that is that. Lots of OTs and other therapists go into the field because they love kids, and and they take the children and they and they get they get filled up from their interactions with the child. They get rewards because the children are smiling and laughing, and what we call those magic moments. And what I have tried to do with all the therapists who come to me, in terms of mentoring and training them, is to train them how to, to turn those magic moments over to the parents so that the joy and the sharing and the engagement, those magic moments that they went into therapy to get from children are not hoarded by them, by the therapist, but instead are shared with the families. This is a very tricky thing to teach therapists to do because they went into therapy to be with kids. 
Right. And <laughs> we've met a few of those too, haven't we, Mary? And some of them that are kind of pathologically codependent, where they are dependent <laughs> for themselves and the gratification they get from <clears throat> the dependency on that the children have for them, or for the particular discipline that they yes. uh, that our methodology that they embrace. So it's yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a tough. You know how? What do you look for? In a, and you know the a, environment changes too, so it becomes mm-hmm. more difficult for the parent to have that, um, um, you know, that unique experience. And you know, this is all fun and smiles and jumping. You know, when you have other siblings in the house and you have something mm-hmm. burning on the stove. So it's a, you know, it's mm-hmm. also a parent really has to find the time, I guess. Well, that's the secret. That's one of the secrets is that it's not that the OT is better than the parent at at helping the child to be able to engage and to have fun. It's that the setup, the environment is so different. You need to figure out how you can replicate some little piece of your house to be an environment that is the fun place to be. And then you need to spend, instead of spending three hours a week going to therapy, all these different therapists, my recipe is for every hour of therapy you have an hour of playtime. You have that hour plus whatever driving time you're putting in. So you have built in for the family the playtime, which is where the rewards come from. And, you know, May, I don't know about you, but, um, you know, I found that... um, I'm sorry, I just lost my my train of thought. (laughs) Um, Something about playtime or... I, I don't remember right now. I'm sure it'll come back to me. Um, but you know, it's 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 it's. Oh, I remember what it was. You know, I, I can remember because um, you know you see so many different therapists. My daughter was a very very um, complicated case, and you know you get so many different opinions. And you know, I was told early on that make this child as comfortable as possible, mm-hmm. and don't worry about people that are going to think that you're accommodating her disorder, because. That's how you need to accommodate it. You need to respect the disorder. But a lot of people feel that you need to change the way the children um, accepts their environment and not change the environment. Does that, well, does that make any sense? Well, I don't agree with that. I know, I'm, I'm with you. I think that if you can make a child comfortable by changing the environment, you should do that, but not to the exclusion of having them also experience what school is going to be like. You don't want to wait till they right. get to school to find out they can't be in a large classroom that's noisy. Right. You have to know that before they start school. So it's kind of a blend, but why put the child through torture? That makes no sense. Well, we 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 I think we totally agree with you, Dr. Miller. We uh we like to um you know, suggest that parents provide an oasis um for mm-hmm. their children somewhere uh where they can be themselves, where they can feel comfortable, where it's quiet and serene and peaceful um, and then at the same time we all struggle with the very difficult task of when to push our children and when to um, kind of coddle them a little bit mm-hmm. and I cannot think of one single parent of a child on the autism spectrum and not very many kids that have other types of issues that haven't been labeled as being overprotective or you know, um, right. helicopter mother Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's it it's it's your child. And if your child needs to be rocked in a chair and he's 9 years old, then for goodness sakes, that's what he needs. I mean, we teach our parents to 
take care of their child's needs. Now, sometimes that means treating a child who's nine years old like a two-year-old or a baby, but not the whole time. We say, okay, we're going to play pretend baby, and you can be mommy's baby for 15 minutes twice a day, or if they don't understand that, we make a visual schedule. This is the time when mommy's going to rock you and sing songs to you, and then we'll be grown up again. Then you'll be nine years old again. But children need they need those basic needs to be taken care of. You know, and I, and I think it's so important because I think it sends a very strong message. And this is just, you know, my opinion and, you know, what I saw in my, my life. But I think that if you're constantly trying to change your child and if everything that they do, mm-hmm. um, you're trying to correct it, you're trying to change it, I think mm-hmm. that sends a message that you're not accepting them. So I think, you know, right. it's a really, it's a fine line. But um, I'm going to go off uh, the mic now and let you finish up. <laughs> we have about eight minutes left. But I would like to hear about the research also, May, if you could get that in there. Well, sure. Let, let's do talk about some of the things that you're working on, Dr. Miller. And, and by the way, we have a, a mom on tweet chat that may be calling in. She she believes okay. that some of her daughters are exhibiting the signs of of SBD, so uh, we may be able to uh, get in one call too. So I know Marianne will interrupt it's, us. It's not, if, yeah, it's, they're not coming through on the switchboard. Let me try to unload it again. No, no, that's okay. She, 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 she may just ask on tweet on on tweet chat. So why don't you start in with research, and if we get a question, we'll 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 make sure that that question gets in. How does that sound? Let me give you just a thumb. That's great. That sounds great. Let me just give you a thumbnail sketch because. You know, I could talk about research until tomorrow, from now till tomorrow morning, and put everybody <laughs> to sleep and give them a good night's sleep. I um, have started a scientific work group, which is what really is important. It's not my own research, just that's important. It's that we now have about 20 researchers, one at Harvard, one at Yale, one at Duke, one in Madison. We have them in San Francisco all over the United States. And so we have researchers that are studying twins, researchers that are studying all children born in their region. We have researchers doing monkey studies and rat studies, and there is so much new research coming out that if anybody comes up to you and says, you know, oh, sensory integration, there's no research, you can just cross your arms and say, oh, that is so 80s, you know, because... (laughs) People aren't keeping up with the new research, but we have fMRI studies, we have EEG studies, we have a new study, a collaboration with MIT. They have made micro, little tiny microchips that measure the nervous system, and the children can wear them during therapy so that we can look at what is happening inside the brain during treatment so that we know what treatment is working to calm the child down and what is not. There is just so much new treatment, um, not just treatment, but research in general coming out. And the easiest thing for those small number of people who are really interested in research is to come to our website where we have a library and we keep, we have over, I don't know, two, three hundred reprints of related articles that people can just download with a click. Oh, wonderful. And what is that website again? The website is www.s. PDFoundation.net, and they can go to our library, and on the there's a whole bunch of topics. They can click on any of them. Our own reprints for our own research are on the right-hand side in a box right at the top. So if they want to see what we're doing, one of the things we're doing is, is developing a new scale 
just for sensory processing disorder. So we're very hopeful that will get standardized soon and, and be available nationwide. Now, uh, are you are you trying to reach out to some of the other organizations like um, Autism Speaks or uh, like um, OCD or, in, you know, any of those organizations too to try and kind of collaborate and say we we may be able to help with your with your kids or with your it's a very good idea and we probably should do it more but we are not well funded like most nonprofits and we are just absolutely maxed out so what we need to do is increase our funding level uh, to be able to really work with other organizations so we need a whole person in that role really we have worked with the Prater Willie Foundation, and we have worked with Autism Speaks and ADHD groups, but not to the extent that you're suggesting. We re- that's a great idea, and we need to do that more. Do you have legislative um, presence, too? Um, uh, is this beginning to percolate up through some of the legislatures? We have um, advocacy groups um called SPD parent connections mm-hmm. and most of most of you know with the autism community it's parents that have really made the difference so we are trying to reach parents who can then help us get to the legislators and that sort of thing so um not in our office but through our office we are reaching out not as much as as you guys are who have kids with autism though okay all right. Well, I uh, thank you so much. I'm going to ask Marianne to step back in uh, because she has some announcements to make about our upcoming guests. But, Dr. Miller, thank you so much. We, we were already hearing from people saying, you know what, that sounds like my child. No, that sounds like my child. So thank you very, very much. I had I don't think any of us knew how extensive um, these things were So, so and how easily treated they could be. Um, so thank you very much, and we'll make sure that we post the links. Oh, by the way, where can we obtain your book? Is it on Amazon? Is it in the bookstores? Yes. Both. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, we will certainly post those, and uh, okay. thank you and, and very, very much. Marianne. And Dr. Miller, thank you as always, and keep us posted. Um, you know, so as you said, so little is known about the research that's going into this disorder, so please keep us posted so we can inform our parents. I will do that, and thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Anytime. It's a pleasure. Uh, this, I want to announce the upcoming shows. Um, Sunday night, I have um, Dr. Lynn Kenny is joining me. Um, you know, whether she's doing her 10-day parenting program, which is outstanding, um, brain-based parenting lectures, she does ADHD summits, uh, she's a clinician coach. I mean, she has her own private practice. She's just absolutely amazing. And you see her tweets and you see her broadcasts. You see her on Good Morning America. But you don't see the woman. You don't see the mother. And you don't see this incredible person that really gets the parents. And she's going to be joining us Sunday night. And she is also, I am honored to say, going to be my co-host on our new network. Um, Our show is Talking Parenting, and it will be Dr. Lynn Kenny and myself, and we'll be discussing that as well. Um, Wednesday night, next Wednesday, we have Diane Kistner, who is um, the placement administration for the Windward School, which is probably one of the best schools in the country for reading and learning disabilities, dyslexia. And as she will tell us, placement is everything, and... um, Failing is not an option when it's taught correctly. So that will be Wednesday night. 
Uh, thank you for joining us. Take a look at our new website, www.thecoffeeclatch.com, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.